Uh, well, friends, it used to be the case in prior generations that news of natural disasters would spread rather slowly. With limited transport and communication, it could be days or weeks or months before you heard of natural disasters in other parts of the world. However, with the invention of the television and social media, images of natural disasters and the human devastation that it brings are broadcast into our living rooms night after night, almost in real time. Who can forget the images of the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, where best estimates suggest that 230,000 people were literally swept away overnight. Villages in ruins, endless body bags, tears, and human suffering. Usually, after the world collects its breath after seeing such devastation, questions about God naturally arise. Where was God in all of this? What is God doing in this world? Why is he allowing such suffering to take place? What is the meaning of these things that are happening? Now, some people, like the atheists, claim that these things have nothing to do with God. Uh, in fact, natural disasters for the atheists is proof that God does not exist for how can a loving God allow these awful things to happen? And so for the atheists, this world is a place where awful things happen simply by chance and randomness. You can't actually complain about these things because, well, that's just the way the world is. Other people claim that such disasters are a sign that nature is paying back humanity for the way we are treating the world. And so they are, there are the, the pantheists, for example, who believe in a god in a sense, but the god they believe in is actually the world itself. And they might call her Mother Nature or something of that description, but if we do not take care of the world, then do not be surprised if Mother Nature hits back at you. Or religious people might claim that the natural disaster is God's way of punishing those who are more sinful than others. And so when the Boxing Day tsunami happens, ha happened, there were religious voices claiming that it was because of the sexual immorality of the tourist, tourism trade in that part of the world. And uh, their sexual immorality had reached a level that God could not bear. But if that's the case, it's, it's uh, hard to understand why God would not smite Sydney rather than Indonesia. But friends, uh, what does God say about the awful things that happen in this world? Uh, what is the meaning of the natural disasters and the devastation that we see in this world? We all try to attach meaning uh, to the things that happen. But what is the meaning or interpretation of the events that we see? Uh, well, over the past couple of months, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, which uh, is, as you know, is the last book of the Bible. And uh, we've seen that uh, Revelation gives us God's view of what this world is really like in the last days. That is, the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. Uh, further, you may remember that these visions of what the world is really like 
come in cycles of seven in the book of Revelation. And so, uh, for example, we've had the letters to the seven churches. Uh, For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the opening of the seven seals. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the seven trumpets. And uh, this cycle of seven continues in the chapters ahead. Uh, Now, it's very important that we understand that these cycles of seven are not meant to Uh, be read chronologically. Um, I've I've, uh, mentioned this before, but we're not meant to put them side by side together uh, to to get a bit of a history of the world, but rather each cycle of seven is giving us a picture of what this world is really like, uh, albeit from slightly different camera angles. You know, it's uh, that illustration that I used of Roger Federer hitting a winner down the line and uh, when, when you see Roger Federer hitting that winner, uh, you get instant replays of that shot uh, from different camera angles. Uh, that's sort of what's going on here in the book of Revelation. And so uh, let's dive into our text as the seven angels prepare to blow the seven trumpets and uh, see what God says about the reality of the world that we live in. Uh, now, you may have noticed as we've read the blowing of the seven trumpets that it follows a similar pattern to the seven seals, which we saw for the last few weeks. If you remember, uh, the opening of the first four seals unleashed the four uh, horsemen of the apocalypse. And so the first four seals seem to belong together, and then the next two seals uh, belong together. Similarly here, it's quite clear that the first four trumpets belong together, and the next two trumpets belong together. And so uh, we're going to have a look at the first four trumpets first. And uh, what do we learn from these first four trumpets? Well, firstly, it's clear that the blowing of the trumpets unleashes some sort of calamity into this world. But what is the nature of this calamity? Well, if you remember, the four horsemen of the apocalypse unleashed human tyranny into the world, didn't they? And so you saw uh, human tyrants being released, and uh, in the wake of that, we saw war and death and famine and disaster. However, it seems that the blowing of the seven trumpets unleashes a different kind of calamity, and it is the calamity of natural disaster. And so you can see in verse 7 that after the blowing of the first trumpet, it is the earth that is affected. In verse 8, with the blowing of the second trumpet, it is the sea that is affected. In verse 10, with the blowing of the third trumpet, it is the rivers and the springs that are affected. And finally, in verse 12, it is the sun and moon and stars that are affected. But secondly, notice that what we see here is a partial destruction of the world. Again, in verse 7, it is a third of the earth and a third of the trees and a third of the green grass that is burned up. In verse 8, it is a third of the seas that turns to blood and ends up killing a third of the sea creatures and a third of the ships. In verse 11, it is a third of the water that becomes bitter and causes death. In verse 12, a third of the sun and moon and stars are struck so that a third of the light is taken from the earth. Now, a third is not a whole, is it? It's not that the whole world is destroyed. It's not even that the majority of the world is destroyed, but a significant part of the world is destroyed through natural disaster. 
Now, this is highly symbolic language, uh, as uh, you no doubt know by now. And so when we you know, see images of mountains being thrown into seas and stars falling from, from the, the, st- uh, the sky, it's not meant to be understood literally, but there is a reality that is being described here, isn't there? We only need to turn on our television screens and the internet to see that this is true. We saw in, even in the past few weeks hail and fire and devastation in even our own country. We also see earthquakes, we see tsunamis, we see pollution and people dying. But what is the meaning of these natural disasters? What is God doing by unleashing these these disasters into the world? Well, here's the thing that I want us to understand very uh, seriously, friends. What God says here is that all these things that happen are both a judgment for sin as well as a warning to humanity. These things that happen are both a judgment for sin, human sin and rebellion, as well as a warning for humanity. Did you notice that the Apostle John describes what follows the blowing of the first four trumpets in terms that are similar to the plagues that we saw in Egypt at the Exodus? If you remember, the plagues that God sent to the people of Egypt were both a judgment for the hardness of heart of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, as well as a warning that unless they turn to God... Unless they repent of their ways, something worse is going to happen than these plagues. And so the hail that you see there is like the seventh plague in the book of Exodus. The sea turning into blood and the waters being polluted is like you know, the Nile turning into blood in the first plague. The darkness that you see there is like the ninth plague. But the point is that all these Uh, Things that we see happening are both a judgment on sin and a warning to humanity to turn to God. Now, that's not to suggest that those who are devastated by natural disaster are any more sinful than anyone else. Uh, We can't just draw a straight line between people who die in natural disasters and their sinfulness compared to the rest of the world. But make no mistake, friends, these awful things happen in this world because God is angry with sin and he's warning people to turn back to him. And that's what a trumpet blast does, doesn't it? That's what a trumpet blast does in the Bible. We saw even in our Old Testament reading this morning in Exodus 33 that the trumpet is a blast that warns the world of God's judgment so that they will take appropriate action. When I was growing up as a child in Korea, um, I remember they used to do military drills for civilians. I think they still do this from time to time. Uh, As you know, Korea is still technically at war uh, with the North. And so they do these drills every now and then where uh, suddenly a siren goes off. And when you hear the siren, you have to rush inside and turn off all the lights. And uh, I still remember the, the fear I felt uh, when I heard the siren for the first time and I rushed in uh, to, to the unit that I was living in 
and mum drew the blinds and we were waiting in pitch darkness. And that was just a drill. (laughs) Imagine what would happen if we were at war and the siren sounded and I just stayed outside. You see, it is a warning to take the appropriate action. And uh, that's what God is saying here, isn't it? When we see natural disasters and death and suffering in this world, it is like God blowing that siren and saying to the world that unless you take the appropriate action before God, well, even worse things will happen to you. I can't imagine worse things happening than some of the things that we see. Friends, it's crucial that we understand this, for we live in a world that says that a loving God cannot allow such horrendous suffering to happen. And when such things do happen, well, God doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, Sometimes people who claim to be Christians may even believe this. I've had people uh, leave church because they complained of us teaching about the hard things in the Bible, passages like Revelation 8 to 9. Is that the God that you believe in? Well, the God of the Bible is the one who brings earthquakes and tsunamis and floods and fires. He is the one who sweeps away men and women and even children because he is angry with human sin, and each time it happens, it is a loud warning to the world that unless you repent, unless you turn back to God, even worse things than this will happen to you. C.S. Lewis captured this well when he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is God shouting at the world in order to rouse the world that is deaf to his word. Now, friends, we're up to the fifth and sixth trumpets, and you can see in verse 13 that things are about to get worse. Uh, The Apostle John sees in verse 13 an eagle flying overhead crying, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. And what we are about to see is even worse than what we have seen already. But again, it's not like the fifth and sixth trumpet blasts uh, are sort of following chronologically after the four trumpet blasts that we've already seen. Uh, No, even within the the cycle of seven, we're not meant to necessarily read it chronologically, but it's a little bit like a a collage. You know, if you go to the art gallery and you see, you know, that abstract piece of art on the wall, and it's a collage of many different things, uh, it's not a strict chronology, but it's just a mashup of all different images and as we see all these different images, we're meant to get a picture of, uh, of something that we see in reality. Uh, that's sort of what we see uh, as we move to these next trumpets. Um, what do we see then? Well, firstly, we see that the focus here is on those who have not been sealed by God. Uh, if you remember, the focus of the 
the seven seals, which we saw in chapters 6 to 7, were on those who were sealed by God and possessed by him. Uh, The message uh, in those chapters was that despite the human tyranny in this world and despite the persecution and death that can come to Christian people for their faith, well, know that God has sealed you. And even if you should lose your physical life for the sake of Christ, you are in actual fact untouchable because you are safe in heaven. Jesus has already won the victory and you will participate with him in the victory that he has already won. But here, notice that the focus is not on those who are sealed by God, but rather on those who are unsealed. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 13, Uh, The woe comes to those who dwell on the earth rather than those who belong to heaven. In chapter 9, verse 4, the focus seems to be on the ones who do not have the seal of God uh, written on their foreheads. But secondly, notice that God allows for those who are not sealed to be tormented. He allows people to be tormented by Satan and his minions. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 1, you can see there that, God, uh, that John sees a star falling from heaven and that uh, this star is given a key by God to what is described as the bottomless pit. Uh, we're not actually told the identity of who this star is, but uh, if you look later in verse 11, his name is described as Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon in the Greek, which means destruction or destroyer. And so it seems likely that the one who is described here is none other than Satan himself, who is seeking to destroy God's people. Now, notice here that Satan is given power by God. In other words, Satan can only do his damage to the extent that God allows it. It's not as though, you know, um, God and Satan are sort of locked in some sort of tight battle. Uh, It's not a yin and yang sort of thing. Uh, In Revelation, there's no doubt as to who has won the victory, but God simply allows Satan for a time to do his work. But what does Satan do? Well, from verse 2 onwards, John sees Satan opening up the bottomless pit, and up from the pit comes all these frightening locusts who are released into the world. Uh, It's likely that these locusts are simply graphic portrayals of Satan's forces. But notice that their role is not to bring devastation to the natural world, but their role is to bring torment to those who do not belong to God. You can see it there in verse 4. Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, which incidentally is the length of time that the flood lasted in Noah's time, but not to kill them. And their torment was the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Friends, it's such an awful picture, isn't it? So much of the world thinks that God is a, you know, some sort of cosmic killjoy, and if you turn away from him and you start serving and worshipping other things, then it will bring joy and 
satisfaction and, and peace to your life. But in actual fact, what the Bible says is that you turn away from God and you serve the demons. And what happens? Well, the demons will torment you. Satan will torment you. But how does he do that? How does Satan torment those who do not belong to God? Well, it's through lies and deception. For this is the great weapon of Satan. Satan's power uh, lies in the lie. It's by telling lies that Satan leads people away from God and into misery and eventually eternal death. And I think this is the point that the Apostle John is making in describing the locusts from verse 7 onwards. Uh, you know, uh, if you have a look at, at uh, verse 7 onwards, you'll see that the locusts are deceptively godlike and beautiful. You know, in verse 7, they have crowns of gold on their head. In verse 8, they have beautiful flowing hair like a woman. They are seductive. And they appear to offer joy and satisfaction and pleasure. And yet in reality, they are ferocious and murderous and intent on doing harm. In verse 8, they have teeth like lion's teeth, ready to tear you to pieces. In verse 10, they have tails like scorpions, ready to sting you to death. They are described as an army ready to destroy whatever lies in their path. And that's the way Satan works, friends. He will say, you know, keep on worshipping your career. Keep on living for money and material possessions. That's where you will find life and joy and peace and prosperity. Forget about God. It's very tempting. And yet, because he causes people to forget Jesus, those who continue to worship these idols will find that despite some temporary pleasures in life, well, they will end up with nothing but misery and emptiness. And even if life goes well for a time, death and eternal destruction will come. Or he will say, keep on worshipping sex and sleep with that person who is not your husband or your wife. In fact, sleep with whoever you want. God is a killjoy. You will find joy and satisfaction and life in these things. Forget about God. Again, it's very attractive. But because he blinds people to Jesus, those who continue to worship this idol will find that despite some fleeting pleasure, and no doubt there is some fleeting pleasure in these things, well, in the end, there will be nothing but misery and emptiness and eventually death and eternal destruction from God. You know, keep on worshipping whatever it is you want to worship in your life. You don't need God. Or if you really need to keep up religious appearances to sort of appease the guilt that you feel, well, keep on doing the religious thing. Go to church every now and then. But in your heart of hearts, 
keep on worshipping these other things and do not really wholeheartedly serve God. Have you heard that voice before? But finally, friends, what we find described here about our world is not only Satan's earthly torment of people who have not been sealed by God, for John continues to describe the unleashing of death in the sixth trumpet. You can see there in verse 13 that the sixth angel blows the trumpet and God speaks from the altar. Uh, Why does God speak from the golden altar? Well, I think it's because... Um, In chapter 8, verse 3, which we read last week, the prayer of the saints were offered up on the golden altar. And so this judgment that is coming upon the world is actually in response to the prayers of God's people. In response to the prayers of God's people, who we've seen in previous chapters, are the prayers to, uh, to judge and to take vengeance on the ungodly. Now, you might think that that is a very unchristian thing to do, to pray that God judge the ungodly. But that's because we live in a, in a, in a part of the world where we experience very little persecution. Uh, if you and I lived in a part of the world where we saw our loved ones beheaded and our loved ones raped and our loved ones tortured for the sake of Christ, then I, I reckon you and I would also pray for the judgment of the ungodly. Now, we're not going to have time to look at the, the rest of this passage in a great amount of detail. But I just want you to see here that God speaks and releases his army of angels to kill a third of mankind through natural disaster, through war and conflict, through sickness and plague, and a third of mankind is wiped out. And again, that is true of our world, isn't it? We live in a world where 230,000 lives can be swept away overnight. And that is not even in the top five uh, category of the world's worst disasters. You know, I was reading the other day that in China, there were uh, between one and four million people who died in the world's worst natural disaster. We think we will hopefully live to a grand old age, and yet we see the death of young people all the time. And the message of Revelation 8 and 9 is that God does these things in the world, not because he delights in the death of anyone, but because he wants to warn the world that unless they turn to him, something even worse lies ahead. And yet the tragedy that we see here, friends, is that despite these warnings, those who are not killed do not repent. They do not turn to God and serve him, but they continue on living in exactly the same way, worshipping their idols and refusing to let go. You can see there in uh, chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Uh, You know, one of the strange things that happens um, on television stations uh, at the time of the 6 o'clock news is that 
they give you a, a feel-good story at the end of the broadcast. Have you noticed that happening in the news? And so you switch on the news and you see horrific things happening. You see uh, images of war. You see images of people uh, dying or dead because of earthquake and tsunamis. You see news of drought and famine. You see terrorism. You see great distress in this world. And right at the end, you will get some story about some puppies being born. And you see this, and after you see it, you kind of think, Everything's right with the world now. And I can keep on continuing to live my life the way I want to, with nothing that needs to change. But friends, what God is saying here is that when we see natural disasters and war and death in this world, we are meant to see that not all is right with this world. We are meant to see that God is angry with sin and unless people turn back to him in genuine repentance and faith and worship and serve him in their lives, then they will face something even worse than the horrors of this life. Is there nothing good to enjoy in this world? Well, of course not. That's not what the Bible is teaching. But sometimes we can be so enamored with the world that we lose a sense of reality. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that many of us have turned to God in repentance and faith. I know that uh, many of us have made that decision in our hearts to trust in the blood of the Lamb as the only way to be saved from God's wrath. And I don't want to rob you of the assurance of salvation. One of God's great and wonderful gifts to us is that those who genuinely turn to him are assured of their salvation. And really the focus of chapters 8 to 9 is not on those who are sealed by God and who have that assurance, but those who are unsealed. But friends, my fear is that there may be some of us who have been coming to church for a long, long time, and yet there has been no genuine repentance that leads to the worship and service of God. Is that true of you? You may be doing the religious thing, but your view of the world is that all is right. All is right with the world, and I will simply go on exactly as I have been living, worshipping my idols of career and money and possessions and sex and pleasure and whatever other things take our attention away from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that you this morning? Well, God says in this part of his word that if you continue living like this, you can fool everyone else in this room, but you will not fool God, and you are living in utter foolishness. God says, just look around. Things are not right with this world. And the reason is because of human sin of which we participate. And when you see these awful things that happen in this world, it is a warning for you to repent. Give up those idols. Make some hard decisions. 
change your life. For God will not forgive unrepentant sin. And turn to God where you will find true joy and true satisfaction and true life. The Christian gospel is not bad news, friends. It is the most wonderful news in the world. But unless you and I see the reality of the world that we live in and the reality and horror of our own sin and our own worshipping of things other than God in rebellion against him, then we will not repent. And so be warned today, and if there are steps you and I need to take in order to repent, to turn to God, and to begin serving him, not serving our jobs, serving our careers, serving even other good things in our life over and above God, then do that today. Heed God's warning. Do not be foolish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us and thank you for your word to us this morning. And thank you that in the blowing of the seven trumpets we can see the truth that despite the good things that you give us in this world to enjoy, not all is right with this world, this world that has turned against you. And we thank you that in your great love you warn the world of your holy anger at sin and call people to turn to you for salvation before it is too late. And Father, we pray for our world that more and more people will turn to you in repentance and faith and be saved. And we pray for those in our churches who may be externally religious but inwardly unrepentant, that you would change their hearts so that they will leave their idols behind and come to serve you, the true and living God. And Father, we pray for ourselves, that you would help us not to take our salvation for granted, but that you would also help us to continue trusting in your Son, whose blood gives us shelter from the fearsome reality of judgment. We pray that you would help us to keep putting off the things that hinder us from wholeheartedly serving, serving you, and come to find more and more joy and peace and satisfaction that only comes in knowing and serving our Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.